Welcome to episode six of the Analytically Speaking podcast. I am Dwight Stoll, professor of chemistry at Gustavus Adolphus College and your podcast host. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Adrian Clark, global analytical network leader for Novartis Pharma AG, based in Basel, Switzerland. Dr. Clark is an expert in chromatography and related technologies, and I'm thrilled that he is able to join me for a conversation today. In the previous two episodes of the podcast, I talked with academic researchers working in the area of separation science. With this episode, I'm glad that we'll be able to get to broaden things out a bit by getting the industry perspective on contemporary challenges and opportunities in separation science. And Dr. Clark is definitely well positioned to help us do that. Adrian, thank you again for joining me today for episode six of the Analytically Speaking podcast, which is the third episode focused on separation science. So before we get into talking about your science, I want to talk a little bit about your background, Adrian, just to give our listeners a sense for your experience and, and the perspective that you bring. So you did your bachelor's study in chemical and pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Sunderland in the UK, and then completed a PhD in analytical chemistry in 1998 with a focus on separation science at the University of York in the UK. From there, you joined AstraZeneca in the UK in 1998, working in the analytical uh, chemistry section of the Process Research and Development Group. And then about a decade later, you joined uh, Novartis Pharma AG in the inhalation development in Basel and as an analytical expert in, in drug substance analytics. And then in 2012, you moved into the chemical and analytical development uh, in the position you hold now as an analytical expert and global analytical network leader. In this role, your responsibilities include identification and strategic and operational technology needs of the technical R&D analytics, developing and implementing innovative technologies and processes in technical R&D, and improving uh, operational excellence and, and scientific and regulatory standards as well. Uh, in a broader sense, you're an active contributor to the peer-reviewed literature in separation science, and you have been heavily involved in the Chromatographic Society of the UK since 2009. And uh, also, you've been a co-organizer of several scientific meetings. So uh, did I get all of that right, Adrian? You did, yes. Yeah. Thank you, Dwight. All right, very good. So um, now on to, to more of a conversation. So during the pandemic, uh, I, I, as I think a lot of people did, listen to a lot of science and other kinds of podcasts, and I've always been intrigued to hear about uh, early career-defining events of, of different people. So let's talk a little bit about that. What events do you point to that increased in your interest in science uh, in kind of a general sense, I guess? So actually at school, I, I was, I was, I liked chemistry, but it uh, probably wasn't my number one subject and I didn't I didn't foresee a, a career in chemistry I thought of going into banking so did actually some work experience in a bank uh, for a couple of weeks and then uh, after that thought maybe a, an office job was maybe not uh, not my dream uh, job and, and so I'd go for something a bit more hands-on and creative so then I uh, started looking at uh, yeah alternatives and I, I saw a job advert actually for Beecham's pharmaceuticals which is is now GlaxoSmithKline, and they offered um, actually a lab technician's job that uh, where you could also undertake some part-time studies at a university. And I thought this gave me kind of yeah the best of both worlds, something hands-on but continuing some studies. 
so yeah, I left home and, and did this for a couple of years and then started my career in the, in the analytical chemistry lab, looking at drug, analyzing drug substances, drug products, excipients, etc. And uh, yeah, after a couple of years, I, I, I thought um, the combination of studying and, and working at the same time was a little bit more challenging. So I, I left and, uh, and did some, I finished my studies full time and I did this uh, chemical and pharmaceutical sciences course at the University of Sunderland that was was kind of set up to train people for the pharma. So it, it was clear then that I wanted to go back into the pharma uh, industry. But I, I thought the, the full-time studies was yeah, maybe the, the easiest way of, of doing this. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, one thing I know from working with a lot of students over the years is um, I think you know, discovering an interest in analytical chemistry is, is hard enough, but discovering this thing called separation science is, is often can be kind of elusive. So I think it's always interesting to sort of hear about different people's path to that. So can you talk just a little bit about that too, sort of how you got especially interested in separations? Yeah, so my first job, I did a lot of chromatography. You know, chromatography is the kind of, I'd say, the main technique for in the pharma industry for, for QC and, and R&D activities. So lots of LCGC, et cetera. Uh, and I even, you know, really got, you know, hands-on. So uh, in those days, we had to kind of pack, pack columns and, and uh, top them up. Um, so you really got to understand what what was inside the instrument. Um, so yeah, this this got me quite curious. And then just you know, in the daily business, looking at different looking at different columns, developing methods, um, seeing what the impact of changing various parameters, different column stationary phase, but you know, selectivity changes with organic modifiers, optimizing gradients, etc. And I, I thought this quite cool and interesting. So this was, um, I think, got me interested there. And then when I went to the University of Sunderland, that was the first point that I, I did any, I would say, real research in, in separation science. The, the course leader, uh, John Luff, um, who's also in the Chromatographic Society, he was well known, um, also moved from the pharma industry back to uh, academia. He was well known for chiral LC and uh, I, I did a my final year project with uh, with him on this, uh, looking at uh, crown ether stationary phases and looking at the mechanistic aspects. Um, you know, uh, how how close did the primary amine need to be to the chiral center to get discrimination? What types of other functional groups were key? And what what types of interactions? Minimum number of interactions to facilitate discrimination. So. This again, like, really got me really interested and curious on the on the on the research aspects and you realize there's still a lot of things to learn and and and, and explore there so uh that that was cool and uh, i was able luckily to continue kind of some of this uh working chiral uh, chromatography when i moved into the pharma industry and evaluated various phases and, and set up some chiral screens and and different modes etc to to kind of really from a pharma perspective, set up the most efficient chiral screening uh, platforms. Okay, nice. Uh, so can you, I talked a little bit about in, in my intro, a little bit of um, sort of what your, in, in a broad sense, what your responsibilities are at Novartis now, but can you just talk a, a little bit more about um, sort of, 
you know, the type of folks you interact with and, and the kinds of things you're working on. Because again, um, thinking about from, from my point of view as a, as a teacher or working with students, I think, um, you know, it's, as I said, sort of discovering analytical chemistry can be tortuous and, uh, then discovering separation science is another thing. And, and students often have a hard time imagining, well, the, you know, even if this is cool, so what do I do with this? Like, what what kinds of uh, projects can I be involved in and things like that? So I think it's really helpful to hear from from the point of view of a, of a leader like yourself about sort of what the what the gig is, so to speak. Yep. So I I basically have a matrix role within the organization. So I don't manage uh, people or a team as such, but I kind of give support and advice to there's over 1000 analytical chemists within the development organization. So this covers, you know, uh, the large molecule, the biologic side, and as well as the what we call the NCE, the novel chemical entities. So, um, and then we have lots of um, molecules in between. So we have things like antibody drug conjugates that are a, a small molecule conjugated uh, to, a, to a large molecule. And, and obviously this covers a lot of different groups with different, I would say, um, stakeholders, the people developing the, the processes, they need analytics to understand and, and to be able to develop uh, the processes so they can optimize them. We need to develop QC methods so we can um, release the batches for the clinical studies and then ultimately transfer them to uh, the commercial QC. So yeah, I, I do this network role, connect the, the different organizations across you know multiple sites, three continents. And, uh, and from a technology and scientific perspective, try and define what the key technologies um, uh, that offer benefits to us and the opportunities, help us to do things faster, smarter, um, or in ultimately improve, I would say, quality of the understanding of the, the products and processes and our, um, our QC. Yeah, so part of this obviously is linking in with instrument companies um, to, to see what new technologies they have this includes uh, software as well as hardware also links to academia and, and consortia as well so uh, i think the key thing for your students is that now the pharma industry is is very diverse you know the there's not the same separation there was uh, years ago between like the the chemical um small molecules and then the larger biologics there's a lot of conjugates or mixed modalities they call them and uh, I think going forward, you know, your students need to appreciate uh, kind of different modalities and that uh, apply their analytical skills for for solving um, the challenges for for all of these analyte types. And, and I think to do this, you need a, you know, a wide range of tools in your toolbox. So it's it's important to have that breadth uh, of, of, of learning in, in your studies. OK, great. Uh, thanks for thanks for the perspective. So um, now we can move on to uh, let's say more of a main discussion topic. And so as you and I exchanged notes um, preparing for the conversation here, you highlighted a couple of things. I think I'd like to kind of focus on on um, your interest in supercritical fluid chromatography (SFC). And so a lot of people will be familiar with this, but I think if you could just talk a little bit about uh, why it's particularly relevant now? I mean, it's not a new technique per se, but, um, you know, is there, if there's sort of 
growing interest right now? What is driving that growth? And then maybe just a little bit about what your um, introduction to the area was, sort of how you get, how did you get involved yourself? Yeah. So yeah, SFC, as you mentioned, been a, around a long time. And, and actually, we tried to implement it in Novartis before I joined 20 years ago. And there was a lot of lot of effort going into SFC, you know, it's a green technology, it uh, uses CO2, uh, basically it's the main component in the mobile phase with a small of a, a amount of organic modifier. And, um, you know, CO2 compared with the liquid mobile phase is obviously less, less viscous, um, has the diffusivity of a, a gas chromatography. So really powerful. So it, it basically, it, um, it, it's like normal phase chromatography, but you can just uh, do this a lot faster. So it's, I would say, three to four times faster than uh, conventional uh, normal phase LC, complementary or orthogonal to reverse phase LC. Um, so it's been used a lot actually for purifications, uh, mainly chiral, but also small scale purifications. It's the number one technique actually. In, in the research area in Novartis and in most uh, pharma companies. But uh, from a, I would say, development and a QC perspective, it, it's not really used. It, um, it has this uh, legacy from, you know, 10 to 20 years ago that it, it, it offered benefits, uh, like I mentioned, but it, it just wasn't robust and the, the, the technology wasn't robust and the, this, it probably wasn't sensitive and, and precise enough. So uh, I uh, I looked at uh, SFC when I was my uh, even before I did my PhD we we evaluated one in uh, Astra AstraZeneca it didn't seem really suitable then and then at, uh, at uh, AstraZeneca we used one again mainly for prep didn't look quite suitable for uh, QC uh, 15 years ago and then I would say in the last 10 years that uh, you've seen a, a like a, a number of instrument companies really develop the technology. Uh, to move it away from just being a prep technique to a, a more QC technique. So they've taken a lot of the, the technology, you know, low dispersion, higher higher pressures, etc. Um, I would say optimized uh, detectors and flow cells now suitable for SFC. So the modern SFC now is seems more suitable for uh, routine QC. And this is what we've been evaluating over the last, I would say, 10 years uh, in Novartis. And we did some internal evaluations and then I would say five years ago we thought this was now ready for implementation and then we've we've been using it in development but not for regulated work so again for a lot of high throughput uh, screening support chemists and um, biocatalysis catalysis screens where where throughputs needed and then chiral and and um, I would say um, activities where maybe um, there's a benefit from using it. So if your compounds water are unstable, then reverse phase LC is not ideal and, and SFC gives you some advantage. So in, in that time, we've been doing a number of um, um, evaluations with, with academia, um, looking at whether it's, it's really suitable and um, with David Guillaume and Amandine Dispas from the University of Liège. Uh, been running a study to make sure that it's uh, you know suitable for for the QC and uh, environment. Yeah. So we've done some interlab studies and developed a, developed a method, validated it, and transferred it to to multiple laboratories um, to really show it's a suitable technique 
And uh, with this salbutamol method, it's uh, an alternative, say, to the pharmacopoeia methods. And these are the kind of things we need to keep doing in the in the future. Okay, great. So, in terms of um, uh, if we could just touch on the on the future piece there a little bit, um, if you would like to say anything more about. Um, where you think, so, so the idea of um, de developing methods and demonstrating what can be done, obviously, is a way of pushing things forward. But are there other, any other um, sort of big technology needs that you would want to highlight? And, and one specific question I would ask is, so I have essentially no experience with SFC. So I'm uh, on, in reverse phase LC, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with what's going on in terms of our understanding or lack of understanding <laughs> about how those separations work uh but what what would you say the kind of the status is with sfc in terms of um you know do we have all the phases we need do we do we understand how they work or sort of where are we where are we in that journey would you say so i think on the stationary phase uh, perspective um there are now companies developing SFC stationary phases. Historically, they were taken from uh, LC and moved over, but but now uh, a number of companies are, are looking at this. And, you know, you have things like ethyl pyridyl phases that, that uh, seem to be very common and powerful. There's also obviously chiral phases um, as well. So companies will, will be developing the things here, um, making use of, I would say, the different mechanisms compared with uh, RPLC. There's also the need, I think, more for understanding here. So the kind of classical column characterization um, um, tools, so Mel Ubing and colleagues, and, uh, and then also Caroline West has, has been doing a lot of work over the last years here, again, to kind of highlight what types of phases will give you certain types of interactions and selectivity. So you can then really use these for your method development concepts. And these are the kind of things we, we really need as well. I think the other thing we need is, as well as, is obviously continued development on the stationary phases and the understanding here, um, but also on the hardware side, we, we need, you know, continued development here. Um, the sensitivity is, is better compared with 10 years ago, but I would say still not quite as good as reverse phase LC. Uh, and this comes from the, you know, the, the back pressure regulator and just the, I would say, the design of the, the pumps and uh, pressure, I would say, fluctuations and, and the flow cell as well. So we probably need further improvements in, in these areas as, as well as expanding the pressure range as well to, to make it really more efficient as well. Okay. Great. Well, um, yeah, I'd say, as we said, SFC is not a new technique, and I guess um, a lot of there's a bunch of technique technologies in separation science that sort of come and go in waves as I talk about it with my students. But it seems like uh, there's been a lot of progress recently, and it'll be exciting to see uh, where things go in terms of um, making this a more prominent tool in the in the box. Okay, so um, now I'd like to shift gears a little bit. One of the other things I like to do in these conversations is is um, is talk about a piece of literature or a couple of pieces of, of, of literature. And so again, in our uh, sort of back and forth before before the conversation here, one of the papers you highlighted as um, being quite interesting to you 
is a paper just this year, I guess, 2022, out of the journal Chromatography A. So the title is Analytical Techniques for Characterization of Diastereomers of Phosphorothioated Oligonucleotides. Um, first author is Tao Chen, and the last author is Kelly Jang from uh, her group at Genentech. And so I'd like to um, just talk a little bit about this, this paper. So um, so the paper's about oligonucleotides, which is a very hot topic right now, and specifically phosphorothioated oligos. So um, could you just give us a, a really, I know that we could talk for a long time about this, but just a really brief kind of uh, introduction to why phosphorothioated oligos are really important right now. So yeah, as you mentioned, oligonucleotides are really a kind of a key trend uh, um, at the moment, and many of the pharma companies are, are working on this. Um, and a key key aspect of this is compared with, again, 10, 20 years ago, the original uh, nucleotide RNA um, therapies seemed very promising, but they, they, they weren't really able to develop many, I would say, um, real medicines from this. They lack, they lack the longevity in the body. Um, the enzymes kind of um, chewed them up. They didn't get to, into the cell. So basically over the last years, a number of companies have been looking at modifying them. And one of the key modifications is the conversion of the, um, the, the phosphoester diester to a phosphothioate. Uh, this increases the stability, also changes some of the binding properties. Um, but the, the key thing is this, uh, make sure it gets to the cell, lasts in the body, and it can really get to the site of action. The challenge with this is that when you go from a phosphate diester to a, a phosphothioate, um, you actually, um, this is chiral, and then with the, with the, the kind of chiral uh, ribose, you, you're, you're basically generating uh, uh, diastereomers. So it... So for every PS you have, then, uh, you know, you, you're generating uh, two diastereomers. And this obviously in, increases the complexity. There's a lot of, I would say, work in the research area of, of um, whether there's benefits from having kind of stereo pure versus stereo random uh, phosphothioates. Um, so there's, there's quite a lot of work here in being able to um, assess the ratios and whether it's, uh, whether it's pure. And, um, and then also issue change kind of chemistry. Does this change the ratio? Also is, you know, you change uh, manufacturing sites or technologies, we need to be able to assess and show that the kind of ratios are the same, or I guess the companies that make them stereo pure need to demonstrate that it's stereo pure as well. So there's lots of work here. There's also a range of different, I would say, um, oligonucleotides so some, some some are fully phosphothioated some just have one or two um, where they're fully phosphothioated then you have potentially thousands of potential diastereomers if you have a more than a 20 mer and it's just not realistic to resolve them but what it means is also you you get broad peaks from a chromatographic perspective so again not desirable but um, yeah the partially phosphothioated ones are the ones that a lot of companies have been doing work on and seeing which uh, techniques um, and modes, particularly modes, column types, stationary phase, the impact of different additives in the buffer, uh, what they what they uh, can do here for the different uh, classes of phosphothioates. Great, thanks for the kind of the overview. So, what were kind of the major takeaways from from the paper for, for you? Would you say? 
So I, I think it's clear based on our own experience and what we saw in the paper, it reaffirmed that it's it's very class specific. So um, different, um, as I say, oligonucleotides behave differently, particularly if it's fully uh, depends on how many phosphothiates you have. Um, I think it is not that one technique or one mode is definitely going to be uh, successful here. There are, there's a range of LC modes, and I would still say that LC seems the best mode, and, and in our experience, it's and in the paper, so iron pair or uh, reverse phase LC seem still to be the best. And um, we have, you know, maybe one, two, up to four, I'd say, phosphothioates. You can probably get a diastereoma profile, but um, beyond that, and definitely beyond 10, it says in the paper, it's probably not realistic to be able to, to separate those. Uh, and I think the paper really, you know, showed that there's there's other techniques that can use to complement this. If you deliberately form different ratios, and you can see differences in in NMR, circular dichroism, this I think metal uh, ion complexation chromatography that can give you a uh, enable you to see differences, but maybe not quantify accurately the levels of the different diastereomers. So it, it really showed that there's a I would say there's a range of tools and techniques needed to kind of uh, uh, show that there's differences between yeah different processes and and uh, and uh, yeah different oligonucleotides as well great so uh, it was interesting to me I, I wasn't aware that uh, folks were using circular dichroism and and also um, on mobility mass spec, I mean, makes sense. Uh, and but it's interesting to see the data. And so I think it's kind of going back to your, one of your earlier points about students that are just coming into the field now and being aware of uh, the different modalities and being conversant in, you know, what are the challenges and, and what are the tools. I mean, I think this is a, a really great example of this. I mean, this is not the chromatography you and I grew up with. Exactly. <laughs> uh just you know on on one hand lots of challenges but also just so many opportunities for the different modes of chromatography and and thinking creatively about detection and things like this so i think it's uh it's really gonna be exciting to see kind of what emerges here in the next period of time yep there's still a lot to to explore and i think as they keep modifying the oligonucleotides further with different ligands this will also mean that uh we need a wide range of tools, and I think eye mobility was was one that we've currently not looked at. That uh, yeah does look look quite promising, and uh, it's, it's definitely worth exploring. And uh, yeah, two D LC obviously here can can help as well, give you further further resolution and uh, and selectivity. So this this is a tool that we we sometimes use as well. Okay, great. So, um, any any other comments you want to make about the paper, other before we move on to other things? No, I I, I think it, it's a really comprehensive review, and and I think people looking to who are starting to work in this area uh, or starting to do the research definitely it's a good uh, starting point. Yeah. Yeah, good point. And uh, just for listeners, we'll put in the show notes the uh, the link to the actual paper, so you don't have any have any trouble chasing it down later. Okay, so then um, sort of the next piece I'd like to move on here is um, just getting your, again, for somebody who's um, seen a lot of 
seen a lot of the industry, seen a lot of separations. Um, just talk about some some of the challenges you see these days in, in kind of a little bit broader sense. So again, in, in exchanging a few notes beforehand here, I, I just want to pull out a, uh, or touch on a couple themes that you hit on. So um, the first is that you, you made the comment that we need to disconnect modern instruments from first generation or, or academic instruments, uh, end quote. So can you just talk a little bit more about, about what you mean by that? Yeah, I think if we look at SFC, as I mentioned, that the, the first wave of SFC, when it was trying to be, people tried to implement it for, I would say, routine QC for non-experts. Um, uh, you know, this was extremely difficult and the, the technology um, probably wasn't, wasn't uh, mature enough at that point. And then what this leaves then is a legacy that a certain technique is just not suitable at all. And and then a lot of um, there can be further developments, but then you just uh, you just hit a barrier with uh, particularly I would say older colleagues um, that are typically then in more management positions, maybe control budgets and uh, these types of things and and resources and, and where we should uh, invest our our time and money. So uh, I think here. Yeah, you definitely need to we try to make a, a disconnect and we call it modern sfc and and things like this or uh, you know ultra high performance sfc and and uh and this this does help to to really give it a new lease of life i would say and i think similar with uh, maybe some of the two-dimensional techniques that were um Maybe again came in from academia and, and groups started to look at them in industry and they probably didn't have, you know, the software. It was quite complex, um, you know, maybe to develop methods and, you know, needed completely different and, and dedicated skills. And, and this doesn't always fit so well in a in an industry setting. So, uh, again, as these new new technologies come through and they're, they're really commercialized, yeah, we, you need to, I would say, differentiate them from a, being an academic uh, instrument to something that's uh, suitable for for uh, commercial use, yeah. Okay, great. And then uh, looking through the, the comments, um, your ideas about some, some of the challenges, I think there's a whole basket of things that I think of as being kind of related to training and education. So I, I think we probably agree on a lot of these points. I know that in, in my own work and, and the work of my group, that's a place where we're investing heavily now to, to try to develop uh, educational materials and opportunities because um, and it's kind of related to what you were just talking about too, that I think this is, these are the things that are kind of needed to bring people along, so to speak. Um, so do you think... Do you see any particular gaps? I mean, we have we have a variety of resources and and experiences, let's say. So we have the traditional scientific meetings and books and articles, of course. But do you see, you know, over over time, have you seen what you think are are kind of gaps or maybe missed opportunities where we could be a little more strategic in terms of where we place our effort in that regard? I, I actually think we need to work on this at, at all angles, so from academia, but also from the instrument companies and uh, and also from, I'd say, the, the end users. Um, um, so key things would be training courses in all these areas by, by all parties, um, you know, um, 
and I think running these training courses for the new techniques like SFC, 2DLC, alongside the conferences that, that people can go, they can get, they can really be trained um, by experts. And as I say, it's not just an academic presentation, it's it's people that really use this or have developed um, and commercialized uh, the technology. I think this really helps that uh, you don't only get the theoretical aspects, but you get the, the tips and tricks and best practices, what to do, what not to do. Uh, method development concepts is one, I think, for these new technologies. We need to kind of simplify method development concepts to make it, um, you know, digestible and understandable for new users that they're not overwhelmed and they understand which are the most important variables to look at where's the right starting point and um, and then as I say troubleshooting as well you need we need to um, promote a lot on that and and also the instrument companies should have you know troubleshooting for SFC and 2DLC like they do for GC and, and LC on their websites so um, yeah multiple angles, I think, here. And uh, th this is really, I think, a, a medium-term program that uh, that we need to work on over the next five five years or so. So it's an interesting uh, point that you raise about troubleshooting for SFC. I imagine that's a, a rich territory uh, for things to talk about and probably one that is, I mean, at least as far as I know, not, not really being addressed in the, in the usual channels right now. So I wrote that one down. <laughs> I'll yep. follow up with you, uh, later on that one. So that's well, there will be a point. book chapter on this. So, um, ah, okay. uh, Paul Ferguson and Mike Hicks, uh, from AZ and, and Merck respectively, they're, they're, uh, um, editing a, a book, uh, on SFC, okay. uh, for, uh -huh. for pharmaceutical, uh, analysis and, and one of the chapters is on actually troubleshooting and, and best practice and then there's also chapters also on uh, using QC and regulated labs so they cover everything from the the theoretical but also method development validation transfer etc mm -hmm. etc as, as well as purifications yeah where it's commonly used yeah nice okay great so um now the the way i like to wrap up these episodes we're kind of coming uh closer to the end here is with some more things that i think fit more in the category of advice so uh, because you have a lot of experience and and you've seen a lot of things so what would you say to to young scientists just getting started i mean we've kind of touched on this a little bit throughout here but if you had, you know, a, a new, relatively young person in front of you just getting started, what, what would you say to them? What would be your advice? So um, I think, you know, what I what I remember is that you, you really need to absorb as much as possible. So just be a sponge, soak up as many papers, articles, go to various presentations and, and training courses uh, and obviously a lot is available now online I think soak as much as you can uh, up I think collaboration is key to not only just build your network but to also talk to other students and uh, academics but experts and industrialists so go outside from your institution and go beyond see what they're doing what types of challenges they have what types of analytes they're looking at the purpose of the measurements and I think this will uh, you know help you and, and also give you like a, a points to reference points to go back to uh, later in your your career should you need to 
I think the other thing that really benefited me and probably was, was never really explained to me early in my career is actually joining some of the relevant scientific societies, you know, like the Chromatographic Society, CAS, and then I would say local and regional um, chromatography user groups, etc. Um, these can be really beneficial. You know, you can learn a lot from talking to people and uh, maybe discussing your challenges and get some troubleshooting and things there uh, and learn from uh, experience. But it, it gives you an, also an opportunity to kind of apply for bursaries. There's typically a lot of student bursaries to attend scientific meetings and conferences. It gives you an opportunity to present your work. And uh, I think th these can really open up your network and, and, and give you a lot of job opportunities and um, career opportunities, maybe outside the, the kind of uh, geographical scope that you could you could have um, foreseen. Um, just just in your in your studies and yeah i think move around don't be scared to move out of your comfort zone look at different areas look at different techniques different uh, analytical challenges work with different people and different molecules um, and then i think this gives you a very good grounding that then you can use for you know new challenges that, as they come through in your career so what i what i realize is within pharmaceutical analysis, there's, there's always a new challenge around the corner that you can't maybe necessarily predict, and it will really push you outside your comfort zone. If, so if you've already, you know, discussed with people working in similar areas, you know, trace analysis or large or small molecules, that uh, I think it, it gives you a good reference point and you're probably less scared than uh, you would be if you uh, had to encounter this on your own. Okay, thanks. That sounds like uh, great advice. So with that, I think it's time to wrap up here. So Adrian, I really want to thank you for taking the time to to join me for the conversation. And I really appreciate hearing your perspective on some of the recent progress we've seen in, in the field and where you see where you think that some of the both the big challenges and opportunities are that are that are lying in front of us and, uh, and what we're likely to see uh, in the near future. Thanks a lot. Great to talk to you.